Open up your Bibles to John chapter seven, John chapter nineteen, verses thirty-one to thirty-seven, and we'll read the text for tonight's sermon. Um, John chapter nineteen, verses thirty-one to thirty-seven. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, They break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken." And again, another scripture saith, they shall look up, look on him whom they, they pierced. Please bow your heads as I pray a prayer of illumination. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we, we ask you, Lord, to be with us this evening, to give us new insights into this preci- pres- um, precious passage from John, an eyewitness of these um, uh, of these uh, things that he saw, uh, your uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that you would give us new insight into this and help us, Lord, to understand what John is trying to say to us and and you are trying to say or are saying through the preaching of your word this evening. We pray, Lord, that you would give us open hearts, open minds to receive your word, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it would sanctify your people, that uh, we would go about our days thinking about the love of Jesus Christ uh, and his atoning work on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, this week uh, we decided to give Pastor Sharp a a break um, in the evening service. And uh, and so I am preaching one of my um, my uh, back pocket sermons. Um, and you may be. And, and first of all, I want to start out by a word of thanks to Dr. Prather. He um, painstakingly read through my sermon. You know, his eye, if you know his eyesight um, and the problems that he is having with his eyesight, you know that that is a long process to read through. And uh, I appreciate so much his, um, because I'm going to be referring to some medical terminology, I really appreciated him um, uh, reviewing this sermon. Um, but you may be wondering, how did I, how did I pick this passage um, to, to do a sermon on? And it all started uh, as part of family devotions. Uh, we were reading through 1 John 5.8, and we were wondering, um, Catherine and I were wondering, what, does it, what did John refer to when he says there uh, that bear witness and earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree um, are one. We were wondering, what, what did that mean? And uh, so 
Um, I admit it, I, I do not know. Um, and so I went to some different commentaries and realized that there, were, there was some debate on that passage. Um, I, of course, I went to Matthew Henry and John Calvin, and uh, both of them refer to John chapter 19, the piercing of Jesus' side. Um, they also mentioned some people think uh, the first John passage refers to um, baptism of Christ. So that's, an, that's a possibility. But I really thought Calvin made a good point that that the witness that John is referring to in first John is the piercing of Jesus side. Because he uses similar um, phraseology in both passages, he talks about the witness. Mar- mar- martyria is the uh, the Greek word, and their views that same word is used both in Matthew chapter 19, or I'm sorry, John chapter 19 and First John 5. So these two Greek words uh, are found in in John. Um, the the words that I'm referring to are remember when we read First John 19, it says. This record is true. Um, those Greek words, aletheos, is true, um, and martyria is record or testimony. He uses that phrase twice in John. Okay, twice. Once to describe the death of Christ and the water in, in his side being pierced, and once at the end of John. John chapter 21, 24, to refer to the entire gospel as saying this, this is true. Um, So he's pausing here and telling us to pay attention and as if to say what I'm about to say is a trustworthy testimony. And so we can see that today's text is of utmost importance to John. And so I thought, hey, what a a better, what better passage to preach on? (laughs) If John thinks it's important, I'm going to preach it. Um, and so uh, that's why we're, we're covering this passage. Uh, in verses 31 to 37, John gives us strong consolation of the truth of Christ's death and therefore Christ's resurrection. He was the only one of the 12 to be by Jesus' side at the time of his death. Curiously, John also points us to two more witnesses besides himself, the water and the blood. These witnesses affirm Jesus' true humanity, describe the nature of his sufferings, and demonstrate the extent of his love toward us. Within this narrative of the crucifixion, John devotes four entire verses, verses 33 to 37, our text for tonight, to the piercing of Jesus' side, with the main purpose being, quote, that ye might believe we only found, find this detail of the piercing of Jesus Christ uh, recorded in the Gospel of John. None of the other Gospels give us this detailed firsthand account. But why was Jesus pierced? John gives us the series of events leading up to the soldier's thrust of his spear. Uh, looking at verse 31, we read, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Here we are told that the coming day was an high day. Uh, what is an high day? <clears throat> to answer this, 
we must turn to the Old Testament law. Certain Sabbaths were to be kept on a given day of the month, not a given day of the week. Uh, These are found in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 to 31, and Leviticus 23, verses 24 to 32, and verse 39. Because these Sabbaths are tied to a given day of the month, they can land on any day of the week. This gives us gives rise to various theories as to what day of the week Jesus died. Um, there are those um, who seek to hold to a literal reading of Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, which reads, "For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the bellies in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Such interpreters argue that a Friday crucifixion makes Jesus' burial impossibly too short to reconcile with the three days and nights of Matthew chapter 12. And so we have two other views. One for a Wednesday crucifixion, which allows for the women to purchase and prepare spices between the high day Sabbath and the weekly Sabbath. And... Um, And the other view, which I find the most compelling, is for a Thursday crucifixion, wherein the women purchase the spices on the day of preparation for the high day, which would be Thursday, and return to the tomb on Sunday. All of this, while I find interesting, is immaterial to our text, so I will move on. I only make the mention of this because the other Gospels, no other Gospels other than John, refers to the the phrase high day. Um, So I just thought it's important to uh, mention that uh, here in this passage. In verse 31, we see the utter hypocrisy of the religious leaders concern for not not desecrating the high day with the dead bodies. Um, They were concerned with following the dead formalism of man-made rules than they were concerned for obeying God. Here they had done the most grievous sin imaginable. Look at who they were offending. The king of glory, who will one day show up with all his angels, not some of his angels, all of his angels, and sit, quote, sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. That's Matthew 25, 31 to 32. Here they have crucified the judge of the earth, and they were concerned about some man-made rules about the Sabbath. This should be a warning to us all. Never, ever put the rules of men before the weightier matters of the law. So they besought Pilate to break their legs. Breaking the legs of a crucified victim made it more difficult for them to breathe and thereby accelerated their death by asphyxiation. And so we finally arrive at the reason why Jesus' side was pierced. John tells us, quote, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs, but that uh, but that's not all. These were dependable soldiers. <clears throat> they knew that their lives were on the line and made their, sure their victims were fully expired before letting them be removed from the cross. They were also not willing to expand, expend the energy of breaking bones of someone who is already dead. But just to be sure, the soldiers delivered a kill thrust with his spear and aimed directly at Jesus' heart. 
in verse 34 says, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. We are told that when the spear was removed, out came blood, both blood and water. This level of detail proves the veracity of the statement. The early church may have considered this a miraculous sign. I know John Calvin asserts this in his commentary. Uh, But we now know with uh, the biological reason for this and what it tells us about Jesus' cause of death. Dr. Alexander Metherell, in the interview with Lee Strobel in the book The Case for Christ, says this. Even before he died, the hypovolemic shock would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart and a pericardial effusion as well as around the lungs, which is called pleural pleural, uh, effusion. The spear apparently went through the the right lung, and later on he he says it could have been the left lung, we don't know, um, and into the heart. So when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion, came out. This would have, ha- uh, would have had the appearance of a clear fluid like water, followed by a large volume of blood. As the eyewitness John describes in his gospel, John probably had no idea what he saw, but, uh, why he saw both blood and clear fluid come out. Certainly, that's not what an untrained person like him would have anticipated. Yet John's description is consistent with what modern medicine would have expected to have happened. So what is hypovolemic shock? Um, that ends the quote uh, from, by the way, uh, uh, the case for Christ. Um, hypovolemic shock is low vo- blood volume. Those who were flogged would often experience hypovolemic shock. In other words, Jesus went into shock from loss of blood. This would cause the following effects upon his body. Number one, the heart would race to pump the blood that was not there. Let's go back to Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. What's the next verse of Psalm What's the first verse of Psalm 22? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which was what Jesus cried out on the cross, according to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. A person experienced, number two, a person experiencing hypovolemic shock would often pass out from low blood pressure. Uh, What do we read in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32? And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him, they compelled him to bear his cross, or compelled to bear his cross. So obviously Christ was so weak from loss of blood, he couldn't bear his cross. Um, Number three, uh, a person experiencing hypovolemic shock, uh, his his kidneys would shut down to preserve body, uh, body fluids. And also, um, they would experience extreme thirst due to the loss of fluids. 
What do we read in Psalm 22, verses 15 to 16? After this, Jesus, no, I'm sorry, in John chapter 19, verse 28, says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Um, Psalms 22, verse 15 to 16 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Is there any wonder why Jesus cried out the first verse of Psalm 22? He was telling us that he was experiencing the pains described and foretold in Psalm 22. The water and the blood are a witness of Jesus' cause of death. According to a paper called, quote, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, published by the Journal of American Medical Association in 1986, they said that the Christ's cause of death was resulting primarily from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. To put it in common language, Jesus bled and suffocated to death while nailed to a cross for you and me. What does Jesus' cause of death tell us? Jesus fulfilled the typological sacrifices of the Old Testament Levitical law. We have been listening to um, Pastor Sharp's evening passages, or evening sermons on Leviticus. And um, in several places, in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9, for example, we read the phrase, and Moses sprinkled the blood upon the altar and around and around about. Jesus probably left drops of blood and footsteps of blood all the way to Golgotha. Uh, what what a better you know? It's just amazing to think about Leviticus, how the symbolism symbolism so perfectly fit what the reality of Christ and His work upon the cross. Um, as also, as uh, Pastor Sharp has been preaching through Romans 5, well, now Romans 6, um, <clears throat> but in, in chapter 5 on Sunday mornings, Paul tells us that Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of works, both in, uh, in its perfect requirements and its, perfect, uh, and its penalties. Uh, Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Christ was fulfilling the covenant of works in our place. He was co- uh, fulfilling its punishment for transgressing it. <clears throat> um, the cause of death shows the extent of Jesus' torments. Um, I, I know I've been working on a, a a backyard project to remove a pergola over um, a slab of concrete. And um, I was trying to remove these four by fours out of concrete. And if you ever know, if you ever tried to do that, it's very difficult because <laughs> uh, they pour the concrete around the four by four. And I'm trying to remove this four by four and I'm chipping away at it with a chisel and, and everything. And I had a really nice chisel and it had a nice cover on it, you know, to uh, in case you don't quite hit the chisel, um, and it, it has has a nice lid around it. Well, I, I hit the chisel, 
but it glanced off and hit me in the wrist, not my hand, you know. And my wife knows this, but I pass out really easy um, whenever I experience a lot of pain. And so I am laying on my back, and the tunnel vision's coming and going, and and I'm trying to wait, and I'm thinking, is this broken? (laughs) You know, I'm feeling my wrist, and it hurts like crazy. Um, And the pain was was just immense. And as I'm waiting, uh, you know, for the tunnel vision to go away, (laughs) um, I'm thinking, what would it be like to have a nail uh, driven through your wrist? Anyways, uh, the extent of Jesus' torments. Uh, fourthly, what does his cause of death tell us? <clears throat> the sinfulness of sin. On one drop of, of the son's blood is of infinite worth. Uh, due to his majesty, uh, in the torments of Christ, we see that the law require, what the law requires of sin. Uh, he took our place. The wrath of God is poured out upon him. Uh, He died for our sins. What does that tell us about our sins? Um, How much they offend uh, a holy God. Um, It also shows us the extent of the price that Jesus paid to purchase us in our condemned state. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 tells us that we were bought with a price, purchased. Mm -hmm. Um, we are redeemed. Ephesians 1.14 calls us a purchased possession. Oh, what condescendence and long-suffering of our Savior. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I am somewhat offended by Arminianism is because they don't believe that Christ's death on the cross purchased anybody. They, they believe that Christ's death on the cross only makes people redeemable. But Christ, when he died on the cross, he actually paid the price. It would be unjust for God's elect to suffer in hell. Why? Because the penalty has been paid. It is complete. When he said it is finished, he didn't say it's almost finished. You have to make up the, the, you know, what's left. No, he said it is finished. And so um, we are uh, his purchased possession, and oh, what a price that he paid for us. Oh, what a price. Uh, Then we see from his cause of death the extent of Jesus' obedience. Remember in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 52 to 53, we read this when he's in the garden being apprehended by the soldiers. He says, Then Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus went to the cross willingly, and he stayed on the cross willingly for you and me. He could have stopped at at any point. He could have, to put a wrestling term, tapped out at any point, but he didn't. For you and me. 
Um, then we see the extent of Jesus' love of the Father and his obedience for the Father to the Father. Matthew chapter 26, 39 says, And he went a little farther. This is his uh, uh, prayer in, uh, when he was in the garden. And fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. The extent of Jesus' love also, uh, what this demonstrates, the, the um, cause of death, it shows the extent of Jesus' love for us. Jesus loves you. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for, what does it say, the righteous? No, the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commandeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ <clears throat> died for us. As amazing as it is to understand Jesus' love for us in the water and the blood, I don't think that this is the main reason John recorded this. It is good to dwell upon these things and to deduce them from Scripture, but let us now return to the main intent of John's record. Verse 35 through 37, And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the Scriptures should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken, and again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. <clears throat> there are three reasons why John records his witness of the piercing of Jesus' side. Reason number one, John wanted us to know that Jesus' death without a, uh, was without a bone being broken, was a fulfillment of Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. In Numbers 9, 12, I'll read, the, read those. These are the description of the Passover meal. In one house, this is Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth out of the flesh abroad out of the house. Neither shall ye break a bone thereof. You can see the symbolism of how careful God constructed the Passover meal to be a perfect representation of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Numbers 9.12 says, They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it, according to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. And reason number two, John wanted us to know that Jesus' side being pierced was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out, this is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. This is, this is a prophecy of the coming of the Holy Spirit and then the new covenant, uh, the greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Zechariah says, I will pour out, I will pour upon the house of David and, in, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him, and as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. 
Now, I know the disciples mourned for Christ as he was being persecuted, but who else more? What is this really pointing to? This, is, this, this passage is really talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at what time? At Pentecost, really. And so we read in Acts chapter 2, um, uh, Luke tells us in verse 36 to 37, therefore, this is Peter's uh, great, um, great sermon, and, and, and the Spirit being poured out during this time was, was what Zechariah was pointing to. And Peter says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? See, this is a fulfillment of Zechariah. And, and John's referring to the whole section that says, and, and shall be in bitterness, um, oh, they shall look upon whom they have pierced uh, as a fulfillment, uh, how Christ perfectly fulfilled that, and then the Holy Spirit then came and brought that bitterness of soul and the, and the repentance uh, of the thousands that came to know Christ at the preaching of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And thirdly, the third reason why John records this witness of the piercing of Jesus' side is John wanted us to know that Jesus was fully dead, that we may know the truth of the gospel. He says, the phrase is, that ye might believe is a strong purpose clause in Greek syntax. In other words, John is saying, he that saw it, that's John himself, bear record for the purpose of you believing. John may have wanted his hearers not to fall for the docetic heresy that denied Jesus' true humanity. Or, uh, but of even greater importance is his defense of the resurrection. You know, the Jews could have put a stop to Christianity once and for all. All they had to do was produce a body. But they couldn't. Well, maybe the disciples stole the body. You know, the ones that were hiding and had abandoned their Savior and had given up all hope. I'm sure that they were able to overpower Roman centurions with, who had the orders directly from Pilate, quote, make it as sure as you can. Well, on second thought, that doesn't sound probable. Maybe Jesus never died. The modern swoon theory. No, that's, that's not possible either. We have John declaring to us uh, through his witness that the water and the blood without, uh, without any understanding of modern physiology of hypovolemic shock and all that, that Jesus in his human nature was truly dead. Why is Jesus' death so important? Death is foundational to resurrection. Resurrection is foundation, foundational to deity. Uh, Romans 1.4 says Jesus is what, quote, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by what? The resurrection of, from the dead. And Jesus' de deity is foundational to the veracity and, or truthfulness, to his own veracity and truthfulness. And Jesus' veracity is foundational to believing 
the Bible and as per- preservation for to us today. In other words, if Jesus didn't die a public death, he didn't rise from the grave. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, he isn't the son of God. If Jesus isn't God the son, then he is a liar and the Bible is, un- is untrustworthy. The older I get, the more skeptical I have become of the world's sources of truth, science, history, feelings, and the more confident that I have become in the absolute perfect truth of the scriptures. It is not an overstatement that from the standpoint of apologetics that's giving a defense, this is one of the most important passages in the Bible. If someone were to ask you the question, why do you believe that every word in the Bible is divinely inspired or um, uh, is uh, and preserved, what would you say? Yes, I believe the Bible because Jesus believed the Bible to be divinely inspired and preserved. Why do I believe Jesus? Because he was God. Why do I believe Jesus was God? Because he rose from the grave. Why do I believe he rose from the dead? Because we have the witness of John and others that he died, was buried, and rose again. And the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that these firsthand accounts are true. Sounds circular? It is. So are all epistemologies. When I say the word epistemology, I just mean the, the study of how we know what is true. Um, that's epistemology. But why trust your heart when it is the most de- deceitful thing in the universe? Why trust the science of God-haters? I will trust he who laid his life down for mine and rose again after three days. And with that, let us all stand and sing our closing hymn. I believe it's out of the New Trinity hymn book, hymn number 340. There is a fountain filled with blood.